the book of Revelation uh, today and next Sunday before we begin our Advent season. And uh, the first week of Advent, of course, is the first Sunday after uh, Thanksgiving. And I will have two different Advent guides for you. Uh, I'll have one for uh, families with children um, of all ages, things you can do. It's a daily devotion guide where you can do some, uh, you do a little bit of uh, Advent devotion with them every day and there's some crafts and things you can do in there. And then of course I have one for uh, everyone else who is lucky enough to have their kids grown up and gone. And uh, you empty nesters or those who God is blessed with not having kids. Say, uh, I'm lucky, you're lucky. Um, but I have one for you, and it's a daily devotion guide as well. So we'll have two different Advents for you. But right now, book of Revelation. Uh, and as we continue our journey through the Bible, we come to the final book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, not Revelations. It is singular, not plural. So if someone says, I'm going to read in Revelations. No, you're not. You're reading Revelation. But anyway, that's a, that's a rabbit's trail. It doesn't matter. Uh, it is one of the most misunderstood and most studied books of the Bible. There have been thousands of books and sermons written and preached about this book to try to explain it. And one of the reasons that it is so hard to understand and one of the reasons that it's, it's so, so popular to read and to study and try to dive into is because it describes the end of the world. And the end of the world is something that everyone, religious and non-religious, is interested in. There have been over 155 predictions, religious and scientific, about the world's end up to today. So the world should have ended 155 times already. Spoiler alert, it didn't. Although I did read a theory that the world actually did end in 2012 and we were sucked into an alternate dimension uh, and we're just living a fantasy world. Uh, if you believe that, I don't know what to do uh, to help you. But anyway, the world has not ended. Now, uh, obviously, all these predictions, scientific predictions, um, religious predictions about the end of the world, they've all been wrong. And when it comes to the study of the end times, we as believers, we, we typically fall into one of two categories. We are either obsessed about it and we're reading everything we can about it. We're looking at the political events. We're looking at the events of the world and we're saying, oh, see, that points to this. And, you know, it says in here and it says in this, this obscure passage way back when. And see, these are the signs of the time that the world's coming to end. And, and, and we, we are obsessed with the end of the world or we don't think about it at all. We just figure, you know what? It doesn't matter when the world's going to end. It doesn't matter what's going to happen because, you know, I'm alive now, I'm saved, I'm going to heaven, so whatever's going to be is going to be. Um, and we think, that those of us who don't think about it at all tend to look at those who think about it way too much as kind of crazy religious zealots and people are writing books about it and predicting it. And look, here's the thing, I'm not going to talk about people who obsess about it or look too much into it, but here's the thing. If you or anyone else tries to name a date to say, this is when the world's going to end. You're wrong, and they're wrong. Because no one knows the day or the time. Not even Jesus knows. 
If Jesus doesn't know, how are you going to figure it out by looking at Hebrew math? So no one knows the day or the time, but we can look at those who, who talk about it too much as kind of crazy religious zealots. But here's the thing. The second coming of Jesus, which marks the beginning of the end for the world, the second coming of Jesus is the most talked about doctrine in the entire Bible. The first coming of Jesus, which we call Christmas, we have a whole holiday around it. We, we and the date's wrong, but anyway, we have a whole holiday and we decorate and we do all this stuff about around the first coming of Jesus. It is prophesied 129 times in the Bible. The second coming of Jesus is talked about 329 times. That's 2.5 more times that the Bible talks about his second coming than it does about his first coming. So for every prophecy about his first coming, there are eight talking about his second coming. Which one deserves more focus from us? His first coming or his second coming? I'm not saying don't celebrate Christmas. I'm not saying we're going to, see, Christmas ain't important. We're not doing it. No. After Thanksgiving, we're going to have our Christmas decorations up. And we're going to be talking about Christmas and Advent for, you know, five weeks. But the point of it is we're looking for not only the, we're not only remembering the first coming, we're looking towards the second coming. So this prophecy, this, this, this book, the book of Revelation, is something vitally important to us. So how many of you, when you think of the book of Revelation or you read the book of Revelation, you get a little confused. I mean, only a few of us, all of you got your hands up. We're all confused when we, talk about the, when we think about the book of Revelation. Because let's be honest, besides the book of Ezekiel with the wheel in the wheel in the middle of the air, which is weird to me, I don't know what Ezekiel was, was on when he wrote that book, but apart from the book of Ezekiel, book of Revelation, it's kind of weird. It's got dragons, it's got bowls of judgment. It's got four haunted horsemen. It's got, you know, 666 and man-eating beasts and man-eating insects and, you know, mountains falling on people. And it's, you read it and you're like, this is just, this is a lot. I'm not really sure how to understand this. And it, it's very easy to, mis to, to misunderstand. Now, there's a lot of people who are confused by it, but you know, don't worry, I went to Bible college. I have a degree that does not help me one bit understand the book of Revelation. Uh, so I have to rely on what you have to rely on, Google, or better yet, the Holy Spirit of God. And so I didn't do much Googling, but I did a lot of praying and reading. So hopefully the Holy Spirit's gonna help us understand this book. Now, there's a lot of symbols in the book of Revelation. And some people, again, they can take them as, as kind of just, just pictures of things and analogies or, you know, maybe these are just, you know, hints of what to be. And some people take it literally and say, well, which do you, how do I take it? Do I really think it's, you know, man eating locusts or is it Apache helicopters? Is it a picture or is it real? I don't know. I'm not, I'll tell you when it happens. When the great dragon comes out of the sea with seven heads, I'll say, oh, he was talking about that for real, not some figurehead kingdom. But anyway, it really doesn't matter because all of it 
is pointing towards one thing and one focus, one big picture. And that's what we're going to look at in the next couple of weeks. So look at Revelation chapter 1, verse number 1. The Bible says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants which things must shortly come to pass, and he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John. So, we're going to stop right here and look at Revelation chapter 1, verse number 1. One word, the word revelation. The revelation of Jesus. The word, the Greek word revelation is the Greek word apokalos. We get our English word apocalypse from it. When you think of the word apocalypse, what do you think about? Into the world comets, you know, meteors hitting the earth and destroying it, plagues, nuclear explosions, all this stuff. So when you think about apocalypse, which this word revelation, apokalos, that's what we think about. That's not what that word means. The word literally means to be revealed, to be exposed, to be laid bare. So the book of Revelation begins with the revealing of Jesus Christ. So what is being revealed? What is being exposed? What is being laid bare? This Is it Jesus himself that is being revealed to the world or to John and to us? Or is it Jesus revealing to John and then in turn revealing to us the world and what's going to happen? Well, it's, it's a little ambiguous how it's, how it's written, and it's done like that on purpose. This is a revelation. This is a revealing of Jesus to the church so we can see him as he truly is. And it's also a revelation from Jesus about things that have to take place before the end of the world or before everything is made as it should be. So that's the main thing to keep in mind as you read this. Jesus, he's revealing things that should take place, but it's not like a specific timeline. He's not giving us dates and times and events. He's not, it's not a specific thing that you can look to so you can figure out who the, the figures in the end times are. The point of Revelation isn't to show you that the beast is Vladimir Putin or Joe Biden or Donald Trump, wherever you fall on the political spectrum. It's not meant to show you that the false prophet is Joel Osteen, though it is. Uh, he may not be the false prophet, but let's face it, he's a false prophet. So it's not to show you who these figures are. The point of the book of Revelation is for us to pull back the curtain of history so we can see the powers that are at work behind the politics on earth. So we can see who is really controlling the things that are happening in our world. So people, they read Revelation usually as a, as a fantasy book. Again, it's got dragons, beasts, demons, and angels. But when we understand what this book really is, it gives us the most accurate depiction 
of our world today, but we have to look at it through spiritual eyes. Now, the powers and the forces of the world that we live in now and the powers and the forces of the world that John lived in, what the book is showing us is that, in fact, they're an illusion. Governments aren't in charge. You know, authority, the police department's not in charge. Armies aren't in charge. Kings aren't in charge. And that's what's being revealed. What is truly happening, who is truly in charge. Now, the book, the, the church, during the writing of the book of Revelation, is, is not doing great. Now, the book of Revelation was written by the apostle John while he was exiled on the Isle of Patmos. And at this time... All the apostles, except for John, have been killed or martyred for their faith. And John, it's not for lack of trying. They boiled him alive in oil, but he didn't die. Now, I've, again, we kind of get this picture of John. He's in, the, he's in the vat of boiling oil, and it's like a hot tub. He's just sitting back going, oh, this feels great. How's my aching bones? No. He is boiled alive. He has second and third degree burns. He is in excruciating pain, but he just didn't die. God kept him alive. And so in, since they couldn't kill him, they banish him to the Isle of Patmos, which is a, is a prison island in the Aegean Sea. So John is dumped on this deserted island full of criminals, murderers, rapists, Baptists, he's got all these people on this island. He's suffering extremely poorly health. I mean, he's been boiled alive, but he didn't die. So he's, he's, he's suffering with these injuries and these wounds, and he gets here, and God gives him this, this vision. But aside from John, the rest of the church isn't doing well either. Christians, they're being hunted for their faith. They're being fed to lions for sport, uh, they're being blamed for the burning down of Rome. They're being blamed for every bad thing that happens in the world. It's those Christians' fault. And so Roman and Jewish leaders, they've, they've made it illegal almost everywhere to be a Christian, but the movement is still growing. And so as a believer for the church at this time, things are pretty bleak. And Christians everywhere are suffering. And John is on the Isle of Patmos. He's alone. He's hurt. He's, he's, he's wounded. He's abandoned. I'm sure he's feeling pretty depressed. And Jesus shows up and shows John how God sees the world. He also tells John what God plans to do in the world. And so when, when we're reading the book of Revelation, we need to see the vision that John had as bad as John saw it. He, again, he's been boiled, but he didn't die. He's covered in burns and scarred. He's alone. He's scared. And he gets his vision. And it is a frightening vision full of terrible events and, and plagues and torture and all kinds of things. And it's, it's a disturbing plan and it's a disturbing vision that he gets about what's going to happen to the world one day. And so now we as believers today, we're not being hunted down and murdered, but we live in a world that is, that is overwhelmed by pain. 
that is overwhelmed by disease and distress and heartache. And so the book of Revelation gives us hope during these dark times because it reveals two things to us. First of all, it shows us the revealing of our world. God shows John and in turn shows us what the world is really like. Turn over to Revelation chapter 17. <clears throat> Revelation chapter 17. Uh, we're going to go back to chapter 1 later, but right now I want to go to Revelation chapter 17. Look at verse number 1. And there came one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials, and talked with me, saying unto me, Come hither, I will show thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast full of names of blasphemy, having seven horns and seven heads and ten horns, and the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery Babylon, the great, the mother of harlots, the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great Admiration. Now, again, chapter 17, we get a real weird picture here. Is this really, is there going to be some woman sitting on a purple animal drinking blood with, you know, tattoo on her head saying the mother of harlots, or is this just a picture of what, what the world looks like? And it's, it's a strange picture. We get these bowls of judgment, and the bowls that, that he's talking about, these are a series of God's judgment that God pours out on the world. Then he shows us this woman, this great whore. It's a Bible word. I didn't, that's what God calls her, so I'm going to go with that, all right? He shows us this woman, this, this harlot, this Babylonian woman. And what this woman represents are all the enemies of God. All the enemies of God's people. This woman represents what the world is really like. So in verse 2, it talks about, well, there's some things we're going to see about her, but in verse 2, it says that her, her customers, again, he calls her a great whore, this, her customers, they're the, the kings of the earth, the kings from every kingdom, and the inhabitants over all of the, all the earth. So this is a universal kingdom. Now listen, what Revelation is showing us here is in our world today, there are two kingdoms. This woman's kingdom or God's kingdom. You belong to one or the other. As a human, you belong to the world's kingdom, or if you've accepted Christ as your Savior, you've understood, put your faith in his death, burial, and resurrection as payment for your sin, then you belong to God's kingdom. We belong to one or the other. 
And everyone belongs to one of, one of the other on this earth. But there's a few things we want to notice about this, about this woman, about the world and her kingdom. First, we notice is she is a prostitute. That's what the word harlot and the word whore there means. She is a prostitute. Now, this, what, what he wanted us to notice here is this, this isn't about sex. It's about sin. And sin at its foundation is spiritual adultery. We were created to love and to worship God, to serve God with our lives. We were made to find fulfillment, to find security, to find delight in God and God alone. And the primary sin of humanity, the, the foundational sin of all mankind is putting ourselves in the place of God. That was Satan's sin. I will be like God. I will exalt myself above him. That was Adam and Eve's sin. If you eat this fruit, you will be just like God. That was the foundation of sin. It's spiritual adultery saying, I can do what I, I am God. I will provide for myself. I will take care of myself. I will do all these things. So Paul says that, the, that spiritual adultery is worshiping the creation instead of the creator. It is serving ourselves and finding our security and our comfort and our fulfillment in things instead of him. The second thing we want to notice about her is she is called Babylon. Now, the, the city of Babylon has a long history in the Bible. We first find Babylon in Genesis chapter 11 when it's called Babel. Remember what happened at Babel? God has just flooded the entire world and wiped out the entire human population except for Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their three wives. They come out of the ark, they repopulate the earth, but they don't go over the earth. And God had told them, spread over the earth. But they didn't, they stayed in this one little valley where Babel is, and they decide to, they, they grow in numbers, they grow in population, they grow in strength and, and knowledge, and they, they get their technology enough, and they decide, you know what? We're going to build a tower to get to heaven. And they make it sound real good. We're going to build a tower so we can go to God and worship God. But that's not why they wanted to build the tower. They didn't want to build the tower to worship God. They wanted to build the tower so people could see how great they were. So they could, they could get glory. People could praise them so they could, like Satan wanted to do, like Eve wanted to do, exalt themselves to God. They wanted to make themselves just like God. So they wanted to show their glory, their power, their potential, instead of worshiping God for his. So the, the essence of the spirit of Babylon, the essence of the spirit of our world is, I will do what I want to do instead of what God tells me to do because I'm all that matters. I'm the point. I'm going to make sure I get mine. I don't care what God says. I'm the focus of everything. Thirdly, we notice she's attractive. Now, she may not, you read it and you're like, she's attractive. She's sitting on a purple beast. Maybe it's Barney, I don't know. 
But the, the Bible does give her some, some things to give us some images to show that she is attractive. And in verse 4, she is clothed in scarlet and purple. She's adorned with gold and jewel, jewels and pearls. And in, in verse 6, John is awestruck by her, by her image, by, her, by how good she looks. In verse 2, her, she is living, her, the way she lives her life and the things she does is intoxicating for a while. She promises so much. Here's the thing. Sin is fun. If you're sinning and not having fun, you're not doing it right. Sin is fun for a while, but it always ends in pain. It always ends in, in tragedy. Even, you know, the Bible says Moses forsaking the, the sin or the joy, the pleasures of the world, the pleasures of sin for a season. Man, when you first start sin, when you first get, get lured to sin and you're, you lust after something and you're, intoc you're enticed by something and you, you give into that urge, you give into that sin, whatever it is, man, it's exciting, it's fun, but it always ends in pain and tragedy. Its enjoyment only lasts for a moment, but then it brings pain. It always ends in a place you don't want to be. You know, there's an old saying, sin will take you farther than you want to go. It will keep you longer than you want to stay, and it will cost you more than you want to pay. So the world, man, it looks fun. But it never ends well. Man, the, 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 the pleasures of the flesh, man, they seem like a lot of fun. And they are a lot of fun. But if you do it outside the bonds of marriage, it's always going to end in tragedy and pain and heartbreak. And sin is fun for a while. Jesus is the only thing we can find true, lasting fulfillment. The thing, uh, next thing we want to notice about her, the fourth thing we want to notice about her, is she is super religious. One of her companions is the false prophet. False religion engages in a lot of activity for God, but without ever putting God at the central place he belongs in our hearts. Every false religion teaches you you can save yourself if you're good enough, if you work hard enough, if you give enough, then you can earn your eternal reward. And when we believe that, that makes us the Savior. We earned salvation, so we become the Savior. We get the glory for our own salvation. We tell God, I did this so you owe me that. The gospel teaches the opposite. The gospel shows us that we could do nothing to save ourselves so God did it for us. All we have to do is receive his free gift of salvation, which means that he gets the glory, but it also means we owe him everything. She also has a message that you can Give, you can get God back in your life without surrendering yourself to him. You can have God as a 
central part of your life and you don't gotta you don't gotta surrender your life to him or your time to him or your talent you you can keep what you need and just put God where you need him in your life again that makes us God the fifth thing we notice is that she has successfully seduced a lot of God's people look over in chapter 18 verse number four and I heard another voice from heaven saying come out of her my people that ye be not partakers of her sins and that you receive not of her plagues. It is possible for God's people, for children of God, for Christians and believers to be swept up in her enchantments. To, yes, be saved on the way to heaven, have a home in heaven one day, but still be swept up into the things of the world and have no relationship with God. In fact, it's more than just possible, it's happening to a lot of God's people. Studies have shown that the lifestyles of believers, the way we live our life, what we find important, important what we put our time and our money and our effort into, the things that we cherish, our lifestyle looks just like the world's lifestyle. They spend their money on the same things. They put their time and their effort and their, their, they find the same value and importance in the exact same kind of things. Our, our, we are just as materialistic. We are sadly just as sexually immoral. We are as self-centered as the world. Our spending habits are strongly similar to the things of the world. Here's the thing. Only 6% of Bible-believing Christians tithe. Six percent. Say, what's the percentage of our church? I don't know because I don't look. I'm hoping it's more than six. I'm thinking it is. But the fact of the matter is, worldwide, six percent of believers say, God is so important to me. I'm going to honor what he says and obey what he says in his word about my money and give him 10% of what he's blessed me with anyway and trust him with the rest. The priorities of Christian parents are the same as the priorities of unbelieving parents. And I understand that. We want our kids to have a better life than we do. We want our kids to, to have an easier, we want our kids to be successful and, and have, you know, maybe get through life without the struggles that, that we had to go through. But here's the thing. The things you had to go through, the struggles you had to go through, the discipline you got from your parents, if it was good, not bad, like some of us suffered abuse, but some of you, the way your parents raised you turns you into a pretty decent person. Maybe it worked. Keep it going. I'm like, well, I don't, I don't want them to have to go through the things I went through. And so we put all these things over, over having our children love God. A study showed that 60 to 80% of children raised by Christian parents will leave the church when they turn 18. They turn 18, they leave your house and they leave the church and never come back. Why? Because you didn't make it a priority that your parents did. Everything else is a priority. When we live with the values of this woman, when we live with the values of the world, God says we bring the plagues upon ourselves. We rob ourselves of God's blessing and God's spiritual power. The greatest challenge facing believers today isn't persecution from the world, it's seduction by the world. 
The sixth thing we need to notice is she hates Jesus. Again, in verse 9, the, the beast is described as having seven heads. And the, then we have the picture of seven mountains and seven kings, and it refers to seven emperors. It is talking about seven emperors and seven empires that have come or will come before the coming of Christ. And what we notice about them is they are drunk on the blood of God's people because this woman, the world, has always hated Jesus and always hated his people. In every generation, followers of Jesus have been hated. Some of the empires of the world, she has used them to persecute followers of Jesus. They, they've persecuted believers for preaching that salvation is a free gift of God's grace and it's not something you've earned. They've hated followers for saying that religion isn't about earthly power, but about following Jesus and emptying yourself of yourself and having becoming a servant of Jesus. In non-religious empires, the prostitute has hated and persecuted the followers of Jesus because they have the courage and the wisdom to say, you're not in charge, king or emperor or president. God's in charge and he allows you to be on the throne. They say that they love Jesus, you know, uh, for saying that God makes uh, churches. Uh, for, <clears throat> anyway, <laughs> they've hated believers for saying that God makes the rules of morality and not man. We see that in our culture right now. You stand up and say that you believe that if you're born a man, God meant you to be a man. And if you're born a woman, God meant you to be a woman. And to change that is to saying God made a mistake and God doesn't make mistakes, so that's heresy, and guess what? You're a bigot. But that's what the Bible says. The Bible says God made everything perfect, made everybody in his own image. So for you to say, and look, I've heard all kinds of things. People are like, well, God made you in his image, but you keep cutting your hair and growing a beard. Is that what the, okay, growing a beard and getting a haircut is a lot different than anything else. All right? We under, you can get a haircut and you can put on makeup and you can, you, okay, that's not changing what God made you to be. He's like, well, God made me ugly. Makeup makes me pretty. Well, good. God gave us medicine too, so use whatever you can. But you can stand up and say, no, if you change who God made you, you're wrong. Oh, but you're, you're a bigot. You're standing against God. That's what the world does to us today. And that, that's because we say, no, God tells us what's right and wrong, not the culture. The world doesn't tell us what's right and wrong, and we are hated for that. And look, we see it in churches all the time. Church people are religious people. They say they love Jesus. They sing the songs about him. They talk about wanting to learn his word. But man, you talk about their sin, and ooh, they're going to hate you. you. Again, you go to some churches where people, and sadly, the preacher preaches, you can live your life how you want to live, and you can do whatever you want to do, and you can, you can, you know, have as many partners as you want, and then you go in and say, you know, the Bible says that if it's not good for a man to touch a woman, and it's one man and one woman for life, and somebody's doing that sin, man, they hate you all of a sudden. You're evil. You're hateful. You're intolerant because the world hates Jesus. The seventh thing we notice about her is that she loses. Again, look at Revelation chapter 18, starting in verse number six. <clears throat> I'm trying to hurry up here. Uh, 
Verse number eight, it says, reward her even as she rewarded you and double unto her double according to her works in the cup which she has filled to her double. How much she hath glorified herself and lived deliciously. Uh, so much torment and sorrow give her, for she saith in her heart, I sit a queen and am no widow and shall see no sorrow. Therefore shall her plagues come in one day, death and mounting and famine and death and mourning and famine. And she shall be utterly burned with fire for strong is the Lord who judgeth her. So we know again, there's two kingdoms. There's God's kingdom and there's the world's kingdom. And this, this woman of Babylon the world thinks they're winning, thinks they're in charge, but ultimately they lose. Those who stand with Jesus in life will stand with him in eternity. Those that stand against Jesus in life will suffer for eternity in a real place called hell. That is the revealing of the world that Jesus is showing us that here, here's what the world, yes, it's attractive, yes. It's enticing, yes. It's alluring, but it hates Jesus. It hates you. It's going to ruin your life, and in the end, it's going to lose. Now let's look at what the Bible, the Revelation is showing us about Jesus. Turn back to Revelation chapter 1, and we're going to see the revealing of Jesus. Look at verse number 10. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and heard behind me a great voice as a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and last. What thou seest, write in a book and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus and unto Smyrna, and unto Pergius, and unto Tyrephira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spake to, with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks, and in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about with paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as flame of fire, and his feet like unto the fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. So again, now we get a, 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 a kind of weird picture of Jesus. Is that what he really looked like? I don't know. Ask John when you get to heaven. But this is the image that John sees of Jesus, and he's giving him, giving him to us. And we see him with all these robes and what he's wearing. He is pictured as a high priest. He is pictured as the fact that he has power and judgment. The stars in his hand, the seven stars in his hand, they represent all the churches in the middle, middle of turmoil. These churches that are being persecuted and chased down and, 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 and just having terrible time. Jesus is holding them in his hand because Jesus is the one in control. Look at verse 17. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. Now, John is writing this, the Apostle John. John is probably the best friend of Jesus while Jesus was on earth. He is called the, the, the apostle that Jesus loved. Now, he wrote it, so it's like, well, John said, I'm the one he loved, but he wrote it by power, inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It's in our Bible, so I trust that God said, hey, John, tell everybody I loved you the most. 
John's the one, remember the Last Supper? John's the one that's laying his head on Jesus' shoulder. John's the one that at his crucifixion, Jesus looks down and says, hey, John, take care of mama for me. I'm entrusting you with the care of my mother. John and Jesus were close. And this is the first time that John has seen Jesus since Jesus ascended to heaven. It's been almost 60 years since he saw his best friend. And what does John do when he sees his best friend run and hug him? No, fall down and act dead. Say, oh, I'm dead. Don't bother me, I'm already gone. Why? Because he thought, because he saw Jesus in all his power, in all his glory, he thought he was going to die. That goes contrary to what most people think of Jesus. We think of Jesus as a nice, meek, gentle guy, you know, walking around in Birkenstock sandals, had the long hair, drinking a Starbucks chai tea latte or something. He's just, a, he's a sweet guy. He's feeding people. He's caring for people. He's a good dude. And he, he was, he was a gentleman. But John sees him as he is, and he is so in awe by his power that he thinks he's going to die just by being around him. And here's the thing. Jesus has always had the power that John sees in him then. When John turns around and sees Jesus and all his power and all his authority and all his glory, Jesus, while on earth, had all of that, but he kept it hidden. He limited his access to his power. He kept it hidden. Now, Jesus is revealing to John who he really is. He is showing him all his power and all his, his glory. But why not appear to John as he was on earth? Why not, again, you're seeing your best friend for the first time in 60 years. Why not appear to him like, you, like John knew him on earth? John and the church, they're going through an intense time of suffering and persecution. When you are suffering, when you are dealing with pain and hurt and rejection and abandonment, you don't need a sentimental Jesus that makes you feel good about yourself. You need the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. You need the all-powerful Jesus who created everything and holds you in his hand and says, I am all-powerful, I am all-knowing, I've got control of everything, so don't worry about what you're facing, I've got it in my, in my control. You need to see Jesus as he really is, all-powerful and all there. Look at the end of Revelation 17 again. It's, uh, 17, it says, when I saw him, I fell down dead. And he laid his right hand on me, saying unto me, fear not. I am the first and the last. So John sees Jesus in all his glory, falls down dead. Jesus goes up to him, puts his right hand on him and says, hey, don't be worried. I'm in control. I was here before everything started and I'll be here when everything's done, I am in control of everything. So since I was here at the beginning, since I'll be here after the end, I am in control of all the in-between. 
It is working together for my perfect plan. See, Paul tells us in Ephesians that we are saved for a purpose. God has a purpose for your life and for everything in your life. The hurt, the pain, the successes, the joy, God has a plan for all of it. And his plan, his purpose is to conform you to his image and to present you as his bride to God the Father. So everything in history is working for that purpose. Look at verse 18. I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and death. So again, he tells me, he goes, John, don't be scared. I'm the first and the last. I was here at the beginning. I'll be here past the end. I've been crawling everything else. But also, John, I defeated hell. I defeated death. I defeated the grave. I didn't do that through somebody else. I did that through my powerful. I am all powerful. You are my child, so you have nothing to fear. Here's what Revelation is telling us. The government isn't winning. In every election cycle, we as believers, we get so crazy. And look, we got another one in two years. We have the, the midterm elections. We're going to get so crazy trying to vote out congressmen and vote in senators. And, oh, we can have this guy because he believes how I believe. We can have that guy because he doesn't agree with me on this social issue. And, man, we get all crazy. And, man, when the, when the Democrats win, we feel bad. When the Republicans win, we're like, woohoo, God's in control. Here's the thing. God's in control no matter who wins. Governments aren't winning. God is winning. Cancer isn't Winning. God is winning. The economy, even though it took me $80 to fill up my car the other day, the economy isn't winning. Seems like it, but it's not. God is winning. And so when we're facing all these things, when the world is just battering us and pressuring us and we don't know what to do, Revelation says, look at Jesus. Look at his power. Look at his control. Look at his love for you and realize you have nothing to fear. We have nothing to doubt. That is how we are to see Jesus. Revelation is revealing Jesus to us as he really is and how we should see him. All powerful and in control of every situation. How do you see Jesus when you're going through persecution? When you're suffering, whether you're suffering because of the beast revelation or because you're suffering because of the world today. John opens the book of Revelation and he says, look at him as he is. See his power. See his control. See his love for you. See the fact that he has defeated death. He has defeated hell. He has defeated the grave. He wins in the end, so look to him. Don't look to the world, because it's going to lie to you, and it's going to end, it's going to lose in the end. So how do we see our world? Is our world where you find your comfort and security, or do you see it as a dark place needing his light? Revelation can be a little scary to read. Could be a little confusing to understand. 
but it reveals the world to us and it reveals Jesus to us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father.